so what I need to understand is, is it just about the coolness, like the temperature, or does it actually make a difference in comfort of your mattress? There is an image on here of two people. One person has their temperature set to 55 degrees, and then the other person has their mattress temperature set to 110 degrees, which what? Seems Ew. unhealthy. Right, like that's too hot. <laughs> That's too hot. She has a smile on her face, but <laughs> it may be because she's... Okay, I should just stop. She's delusional from the heat. Like. Welcome back to Mastering Mito, a podcast masterclass covering everything you need to know about e-commerce brought to you by Flywheel Digital. Unfortunately, this episode is not actually about mattresses or people who set their mattress temps to 110 degrees. We do, though, have a special guest here today to talk about his new book, Winner Sells All, Amazon, Walmart, and the Battle for Our Wallets. But first, my name is Emma Irwin, and I'm a senior editor and specialist at Flywheel. Without further ado, let's meet our guest. Jason Del Rey, I'm the author of the new book, Winner Sells All. I'm also a longtime business journalist. Perfect. Thank you. And then one of our intro questions for everyone is we usually ask what the last thing they purchase from wherever they shop the most. But because your book is about Amazon slash Walmart, where do you shop the most of those two? Ooh, it's close now. I'd say it still leans probably maybe 65, 35 Amazon over Walmart targets also in there somewhere. In that case, I'm going to ask you what the last thing you purchased from Amazon was. My own book doesn't count, does it? No. <laughs> that is not <laughs> going to have I... to say no on that one. I did not buy my own book. Okay. So the last thing I bought was a cushioned seat for big and tall men or women that go on bleachers, a birthday gift for my brother-in-law. Love that. Okay. Last question for you, which you're going to answer at the end of the entire interview. But we ask this to everyone as well. Just something that lives on a digital wish list of yours, which is always interesting to see what people spew out for all of this. But it just means it lives in a cart and you won't actually purchase it. And for whatever reason, why? But we'll come back to it at the end if that sounds good. And it doesn't have to be from Amazon or Walmart specifically. But what if the answer is that there is nothing on a digital wish list in my life? You don't have anything not like one i don't believe you not one single thing <laughs> there's something i've been intrigued by but have not pulled the trigger on but i will look it up to make sure i have the right name okay i got it amazing we'll bring it back in the end because now i'm dying to know in this episode we're going to learn about jason's background how he came to be a prominent journalist covering e-commerce an overview of winner sells all and we're going to hone into the book from a CPG perspective, focusing mostly on one of the chapters that tells a bit of the story in the Amazon Walmart quest for CPG domination. From my research, you know, Winter Sells All is this culmination. It's three years of work. You quite meticulously studied the two kind of retail behemoths that we know in the US, Amazon and Walmart. But I'd love for you to tell me a little bit about your journalism journey to becoming so well-versed in Amazon and Walmart. And you're highly respected at our company for your reporting. So trying to think if I'm giving the abridged or unabridged version, maybe somewhere in between. Probably since college, I had an idea I wanted to go into some type of journalism. I 
thought I was going to be a sports reporter like I had been briefly before going to journalism school, but there were no good sports journalism jobs at the time. And so I kind of lucked into, fell into business journalism. One of my favorite articles I wrote was about a hot tub manufacturer that during the recession needed to find something else to make other than hot tubs. And so they spun off this little lab that realized they could make stand-up paddle boards. And um, I got to go out in the Pacific Ocean on a stand-up paddle board at 5.30 a.m. in the morning and fall off repeatedly without a wetsuit. So I kind of fell into business journalism and eventually got to a place where I was covering media companies at Advertising Age, which is a great trade publication. was happy there and was covering digital media and advertising technology. And eventually, over the years, grew to really love covering retail and e-commerce, Amazon at differing points. And over time, also covered Walmart in depth, especially after they purchased Jet.com. So loved writing and reporting and thought I would be a sports journalist and sort of fell into business journalism and never looked back. So you recently wrote a book, Winner Sells All. Can you not necessarily in brief, but without reading the entire book to me. Kind of tell me, what is Winter Cells all about? Who is the target audience? Was it always that was the target audience or you wrote it more as like a personal project? Damn, if that was a personal project, that was a <laughs> terrible use of three years and strain on my marriage. But <laughs> no, so it was basically, I look at it as the inside story of the greatest business rivalry of the 21st century is, is sort of what my internal framing was. And so the audience to me, the sweet spot of the audience or the target audience was anyone who's works in e-commerce or retail or cares about e-commerce and retail for could be a variety of reasons. They, their spouse works in the industry. They're curious about how powerful the, these two players at the top of the industry have gotten. They love Jeff Bezos or Andy Jassy or Doug McMillan or, or hate Jeff Bezos, Andy Jassy or Doug McMillan. But really, the, the sweet spot was anyone who is interested or works in retail or e-commerce. And then I was hoping there would be some readers who sit outside of those industries but care enough or curious enough about how these companies got to be as powerful as they are and where they might go from here. I think it's a great, like after reading it, it definitely great for those of us who work so deeply in the e-commerce industry. But reading, I was like, this could also actually be like beneficial for anyone who's not necessarily in our industry and just is kind of curious about Amazon and Walmart. We all use them. I mean, my wife typically has zero interest in anything I write, but awesome. I, <laughs> which I thought at first might be problematic, but I don't know. There are times when I don't want to think about my work. And so it is very good to be married to someone who really does not care. That said, I wrote the book so that someone smart and curious like my wife who sits outside the industry, if they, for some reason, saw it on a bookshelf or picked it up or someone recommended it to him, that the storytelling, the character development would be both accessible and interesting enough that they could get through the book and enjoy it. And so, yes, she's biased, but my wife was my first reader and my last reader on this book and enjoyed it. And trust me, she would tell me if she did not enjoy it. And so <laughs> I may never know how many of those sort of 
outside the industry readers end up reading the book, but I did, you know, really try my best to write it in a way that is smart enough for people in the industry, but accessible enough for those outside. All right, now we can dive into CPG and what Jason sees as the future of this rivalry between Amazon and Walmart. I've listened to almost all of Jason's interviews regarding Winter Sells All, and a fascination with CPG has come up in all of them. So I decided to ask him, why the fascination? Yeah, I think, you know, one big reason is it can be, depending on which category of CPG you're in, really difficult to make money selling CPG online. And, and you know, I get into this in the book, and I'm sure we'll talk about with, with the idea of Prime Pantry, but low price points, but sometimes heavy items or and just like trying to make that calculus work and trying to bring the same type of shopping someone would do in store, meaning not buying a 18 pack of something, but buying by the ones, you know, trying to make that experience work online and really get some real e-commerce penetration into that category. And so I think just like the math problem about of selling CBG online was what first interested me. And then back in, I want to say maybe 2017, I wrote a piece about sort of a pricing war between Walmart and Amazon that was specifically focused on CPG products. And so that that really, intri- I talked to a ton of CPG execs for that piece, I think none of whom allowed me to actually quote them, uh, which is not surprising. But so that, that sort of like kept my interest or, but over the years, frankly, like there were, I wasn't able to for a variety of reasons, sort of dig into CPG all that much in in sort of a long form way. And so when I had had this opportunity to write this book, knowing how big obviously Walmart is in, in grocery and CPG and Amazon sort of various attempts to get into grocery and CPG in a real way, I just, I, I tried to look for a way to tell a story there that was interesting to me and hopefully readers, but also one that maybe wasn't super well known to the broader industry. And uh, that sort of led me to the the rise, I don't know if you could call it a rise, but the rise and fall of, of the Prime Pantry idea. Well, I loved the Prime Pantry chapter, and we can dig into that a little bit more without giving, because we want people to read the book, right? So like, we don't have to give away the whole chapter. But I think it's one of the most fascinating things. And I've been at this job long enough that when I started we and I worked on grocery accounts, you know, we did Prime Pantry was still a thing. And then during like the beginning of COVID, I even would shop via kind of Prime Pantry. But goddamn, it was so difficult to actually check out of Prime Pantry with the separate cart and everything. Yeah. Just one of my favorite quotes from an from the book was a former executive, I think on on the record, a former Amazon executive who was just like between the separate carts and I think like different pricing, depending on which part of Amazon you were shopping in for similar or the same products. Like, man, we, I am not, I am not proud of that. And that was someone who actually had veto power to, to, <laughs> to uh, change the idea in the early days. But anyway, sorry, I, I think I cut you off, Emma. all good that is okay i would like for you to kind of describe from your research like what was the point of prime pantry in the beginning and then synopsis going down the hill what ultimately led to its demise yeah so at least according to what amazon calls their p 
PR FAQ memos. So, you know, when they're developing an idea, writing a press release for what this product, you know, what it, what this product would be when it's released to the world and then answering what they think would be common questions from the PR FAQ, which was written by Doug Harrington and I cite in the book, basically had to do with like, if we ever want to, if we have this, if we want to fulfill our grand vision of being as big in retail as a Walmart or a Target, we're going to have to figure out how to sell super commonly purchased products. And the the exact product that they wrote about was, uh, I think it was a six pack of Diet Coke. Like, how are we going to sell that for a good price online? And again, low price point, but kind of heavy. And so it started all with Diet Coke. And yeah, they they really were trying to figure out how do we let people shop how they shop in a store for CPG products. Again, trying to avoid the 24-pack of whatever, tuna, deodorant, I don't know, <laughs> and do it in a way that we don't completely lose our shirts on. And, you know, they came up with this, but it was partly starting with the consumer. I think some people would say a reason why it ended up failing was because... It was as much or even more so about the economics, which is like understandable, but it created this, you know, for people who don't remember, Pantry was essentially, even if you were a Prime member, you had to pay, I think, $5.99 or $4.99, I think $5.99 initially this is, for a box that you could fill up with as much CPG goods, so bottle of soda, bottle of shampoo, six pack of Diet Coke, as much as you could and, you know, not have to worry about a bulk purchase, but you could, you know, and, and they created what was pretty interesting, but also kind of confusing this virtual or digital representation of a shipping box. And they would tell you like how much room you had left in that box after you added a product. And so I thought that was like, cool. I just, it was very like Amazon's very much about like, one click right and this was like many clicks and like looking at this box and even for me who at the time felt it felt like amazon could almost do no wrong as they tried out new things it felt like it was going to be an uphill battle and and it turned out to be one and do you think in terms of the only way i can like best phrase this is like the hunt or the search for cpg domination which i don't know if that's how both companies actually think about Maybe they do think about it as the hunt for CPG domination. Yeah. But in the future, do you think one of them, this is more of a personal opinion, but based on research, like one of them is ultimately going to come out winning of selling all, specifically in CPG? I think, listen, Walmart's been at this a long time and their pickup business. I, I, I'd, I'd love, I don't know if you have this data, I'd love to know what percentage of their pickup business or curbside business is CPG slash grocery and how much it's different or not from in-store sales. Uh, so if any listeners know that, my nerdy retail e-commerce brain uh, would love to know. Hey, it's Narration, Emma. I don't have exactly this data as concisely put together as Jason is looking for, but from our friends at Edge Retail Insight, I can tell you that in 2022, Edible grocery sales from Walmart.com were $22 billion and $265.5 billion from in-store. Health, beauty, and personal care e-commerce sales 
$4.3 billion versus $20.3 billion in-store, and household and pet e-commerce sales were $3 billion versus $17.9 billion in in-store sales. Okay, that doesn't specify the fulfillment method of the e-commerce orders such as pickup, but it is interesting to look at the sizes of the channels by category for Walmart. Back to Jason. I think Walmart has expertise in this field. And obviously Amazon still sells a ton of CPG, right? Just in maybe different pack sizes and the like. And I think they'll keep going at the quote unquote problem of trying to have you be able to buy that one, you know, one tube of toothpaste at a reasonable price. And they were doing it for a while and it, I didn't know how they were doing it. Like, I think I wrote an article many years ago about being able to order a $2 item and have it delivered the next day. And I think it was a single tube of toothpaste. I think they'll keep going at it. And maybe, you know, obviously they do it through Amazon Fresh, Whole Foods stores, but it feels to me like they won't be satisfied and they'll want a way to for you to be able to do that in a really cost-effective way through amazon.com. I just don't I don't know what the feasible way is other than a pickup business. That's why and I'll just go back in time a little bit like the idea at least of jet.com that you could as you added stuff to your cart you could save money like there seemed to me to be some potential promise there in CPG but for a variety of reasons, as I explained in my book, that that never really worked out. Except it did work out for Mark Laurie with the sale to Walmart. Did I answer your question? I don't even know if I answered your question. Well, it's one of those questions where like the answer is like so big that there maybe really even isn't an answer. Like we just have to all wait and see and like give it twenty years. And I know in your other interviews you talk about how like, hey, in twenty years we might have a third player and maybe like things are going to change up. Maybe there is no CPG domination for Walmart and Amazon. Someone else might come in and totally turn things around like Amazon did and throw everyone off. And then we all just ramp up and figure it out. Yeah. I mean, maybe they exist and it's Instacart or maybe they don't exist and it's or maybe TikTok takes over the world. In Winner Sells All, Jason has some quotes from CPG execs going back to 2017 that discuss difficulties with working with Amazon, especially with everything going on with Prime Pantry and then Fresh. I was curious, in the six years since he was having those discussions, if he's still hearing about difficulties from the brands he speaks to or if anything has kind of changed in tone. Oh, that's a great question. I think, trying to think when I stopped reporting for this book. So I keep reporting both for my own newsletter and as I think about what I, what I want to do next in a job. But um, I stopped reporting for the book really last fall. Like everything with quote unquote partnerships with Amazon, you have folks who for whatever reason have some leverage with Amazon, whether they're a big brand or a younger brand that's really hot. And so those folks will say like, you know, we get it. we're in tough we have tough negotiations, but like we get a lot of good out of it. And then you have the majority of the industry that needs Amazon more than Amazon needs them and then the, you know, you hear a lot of gripes. And so I don't know that it's gotten much better but now I want to do some more reporting because I don't know how much better or worse it's gotten. I think it's brands I talk to. It's always going to be a challenging relationship unless you have some real leverage over Amazon. 
part of the frustration that I heard from CPG executives was not that like this company is a tough negotiator because Walmart's a tough negotiator. I mean, other big grocery chains or big box change chains, if they're doing their job, are tough negotiators, right? It was that for at least some period of time, Amazon was a tough negotiator, like really in some eyes, like an unfair tough negotiator, and yet was not delivering their end of the bargain. And I'm I'm talking specifically about sort of some of their Amazon fresh years where they were guaranteeing new markets and sales and like just really across the board, not living up to their end of the bargain. And then I, I think in the book, I say, you know, they'd come back to negotiations the following year, sort of like sort of with what I call like corporate amnesia, like just not acknowledging or remembering that they just failed to live live up to their end of the bargain and, and would still come with really high level demands. Interesting. You mentioned Amazon Fresh, so I'm going to insert one question in there. I think you talked about this in your interview with Brian of CPG Guys in his fast forward section, but something you realized that you didn't think you were going to realize was just like how difficult physical grocery retail is to get into, and especially for Amazon. And then there's also an emphasis on like humans run what Amazon is doing. Like Amazon's not a robot. It is humans that build everything. So like, do you think Amazon is going to figure out physical grocery? I think they're going to keep put in a lot of time and money behind it. I think they believe it's a must have. And so what I've seen so far like makes me really skeptical that they're going to figure it out, but I just I've covered them for 10 years and just never want to bet against them when it's something they're going to spend a lot of time and money on. So that is a nuanced non-answer, but that's the best I could give you. I'll accept it. I take that. The last question I had for Jason stems from the June episode of This Month Above the Fold, and Patrick pointed out that the book doesn't heavily cover competition in that ad tech media space between Amazon and Walmart. So of course, I then went and asked the writer himself. I tried to write about things where there was a real rivalry between the companies and or, or sectors. And there is now, but as I was writing the book last year, I mean, I forget what the sales numbers were, were but Walmart really just got started in this space and in a big way in like the last what? Putting aside when they announced Walmart Connect, like in the last like 18, 24 months. And so... Part of it was just I, in terms of my reporting and, and where I was at, at with the book, I felt like it was still a space where Walmart was tiny and just starting to get going and so was not going to be a space that I, I necessarily had the time or would choose or it made sense for me to dive deeply into. That said, I mean, you probably could write a half a chapter or a chapter about the ad space. I just, based on my timing and where the rivalry in that space was at, I just, I made the decision that it wasn't a fit for this book. That's valid. I accept that answer. I'm sure- Patrick won't, but that's fine. No, I know, but I'm not Patrick. I'm a little bit easier. So I think he would be like, oh, you could write a whole book on that. I think Patrick should do that. And if he needs someone to ghostwrite it, maybe we should talk. Boom. Love it. <laughs> So I'm kind of curious, what's next for you? Do you know? Are you just live, going by the, going with the flow? No, I need to figure that out. I'm doing a little bit of writing. 
on my own Substack, which has the working title of Already Shipped. And so I'll probably do a little more writing there. But I'm also, uh, when I left my job in January, I really did spend way more time than I thought on the book launch and, you know, planning not only media appearances, but where I would publish excerpts of the book and the like. And so I'm starting to to circle back around with, ooh, I hate that phrase in an email, but it just came out of my mouth. I'm starting to <laughs> circle back around with a bunch of the media organizations that had expressed interest. So right now I'd say I am undecided. So if listeners have a crazy job idea for me, uh, whether journalism where I think I'll st- stick or otherwise, they should reach out. Last but not least, to wrap us up, we had to go back to Jason's digital wishlist. So I'm not making this up, but I have been curious for years about, it's from a company called 8sleep, and I think they call it a pod cover. It's essentially something you put, I don't even know whether they actually sell a mattress that cools you down at night or you just put something over your mattress but whatever it is i've been intrigued by it but have not pulled the trigger i think partly for price and partly because my wife and i currently hate our mattress (laughs) but we are not replacing it until we decide we may do work on our house in that case we will be able to finally upgrade from a queen to a king bed and so we are just sleeping on this mattress we kind of dislike for now until we make that decision. This is interesting because as you were talking, of course, I'm now on the Eight Sleep website and trying to, it is kind of hard to tell what exactly it is. Oh my gosh. I'm just looking at a price point. I mean, it it will definitely... Oh yeah, it's um, not cheap. <laughs> wow. What? What? What is this? You describe to, our, to your listeners what it is. Okay. And in the one minute that I've been looking at this, It is a cover that goes on top of your mattress, but it's connected to this like contraption of a box. And then there's a tube that connects the box to the cover. And somehow this tube is able to heat and cool both sides of the bed so that you and your partner can change the temperature of the bed to be hotter or cooler somehow. And I guess it's comfortable. And what I was looking at, it was like two to $3,000. So what I need to understand is, is it just about the coolness, like the temperature, or does it actually make a difference in comfort of your mattress? There is an image on here of two people. One person has their temperature set to 55 degrees, and then the other person has their mattress temperature set to 110 degrees, which what? Seems unhealthy. Right? Like, that's too hot. (laughs) too hot she has a smile on her face but (laughs) yeah i don't know what's going on in that 110 degrees but can't be anything good and that wraps up this episode of mastering me if you don't already have winter cells all in your shopping cart what are you waiting for thank you jason del rey for your time and labor required to write this book we hope you've enjoyed the conversation i'm emma Irwin, and this episode was produced by klaus cancel with sound design by enos attention See you next time.